you for the depth of your love. Uh, that nothing can separate us from it. No height, no distance, nothing in all of creation. I pray that uh, you'd speak to us this morning. You'd speak that into our hearts. And uh, you'd speak through Michael, speak through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. And you may be seated. Again, thank you, Brandon and Amy, for um, helping us to, to worship and to, to think deeply about the truths of the grace of God and His wonder. Um, that question, why should I gain from His reward? Um, there's not a good answer to that, why we should gain. It's not a good not a good reason why we should benefit from what he's done for us other than that was his purpose as we will um, see a little bit today. We are back in First Peter after a couple of weeks talking about um, prayer. We are going to be in verses 10 through 12. Again, there is a, an outline in the bulletin. There's one on the back table if you need one. Uh, and there will also be a couple of slides up here for you to follow along if you need to. Um, Reminder, someone said, how long are you going to wear those? Till we finish, First Peter at least. Because it's a reminder that we are aliens. We're scattered aliens. We're not where we belong. Things are not right where we are. And the purpose of First Peter is to teach us how to live a life in a place where things are not right. Where we are, in a simple sense, just out of sorts, but in a big, big sense, we're really not where we belong. We're not where we should be. And because we're not where we should be, the world treats us in such a way um, that we don't like. Or maybe that we do like. And we've embraced it, and part of what Peter's trying to get us to see is you are different. This is also one of the, the couple of ties that I own that if you said, can I have that, I would say no. Most anything else, if I really like that, can I have that? Sure, got plenty. Uh, this is one of the, really, I think, probably two ties that to me is valuable. It has value. It belonged to my grandfather. Um, he passed away. My grandmother gave it to Would you like this? Yeah, I'd like that. Um, it has value because of something in the past. Simply because it has, it has no value for the future. I don't reckon that I'll ever be able to sell this for anything. I mean, ultimately, it has no value in the present. It, uh, it doesn't do a lot. I mean, I can look at it and have fond memories, but it, you know, it doesn't strengthen my faith day to day. But it has value because I have fond memories of, of the past. And we're going to talk about how our salvation today... Um, especially how it deals with the past, is valuable for us. We have been talking in First Peter about, I don't think I've used this word, but Peter really has been describing to us the value of our salvation. Began back in verse 3, and he talked about that, that our salvation was valuable for it held a, a promise for the future. There was a guarantee, so to speak, as we read in verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead for the purpose of or to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, 
and undefiled and will not fade away reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God. Our salvation has value just like much differently, but but similar to you make an investment and it has value because you've been guaranteed or promised or at least given the hope of in the future it'll be worth more than it is now. We'll say this investment is valuable to me because of a future price. In a similar way, our salvation is valuable to us because we're guaranteed something better in the future. And it's not like just an investment from someone who studies stocks and bonds. This is a promise from the creator of the universe, from the one who made all things. It's not affected by death. It's not affected by impurities. It's not affected by time. Nothing changes our salvation. And that's true because we trust God. God says, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O Jacob, are not consumed. In in the context of that in, in Malachi, there's judgment coming. And Jacob, Israel, might be, should necessarily be afraid. But the good news is, because God doesn't change, because He made a promise to the nation of Israel, regardless of what judgment looks like, regardless of whether you think you've been wiped off the map completely, you're not consumed. You're not completely done away with. There's always a remnant because God keeps His promises. And so we trust in Him. So our salvation has value for us today because it's guaranteed in the future. That's the good news. That's the gospel. That is our salvation. And then a couple of weeks ago, we talked about how our salvation has value in the present. It's beneficial in the present. Because as we rejoice together over our salvation as a community, as a family, it strengthens our faith. It helps us persevere through the trials of life. We all face trials. Remember, we are scattered aliens. We live in a place we don't belong. And rejoicing together in that salvation, in that guarantee, strengthens our faith for the present and allows us to persevere. Our salvation has value today because it's helpful today to strengthen our faith. As we live in communities, we live as a family, as we rejoice together, as we encourage one another. We talked about in that passage a couple weeks ago how many, all the times the word you appears, it's plural. We're meant to live life together. Salvation has value, not because it supplies material blessings today, but because it supplies peace with God today. Paul writes, therefore having been justified by faith, you have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Our salvation has value because it's valuable today. And so, if we fail to grasp that, if we're ignorant of that, or we we don't understand that, 
Could it be because we're not dwelling on those facts that are true? If I'm not spending time in God's Word thinking about the promises and allowing those to wash over me, then there's a good chance I'll miss out on that future value and therefore the benefits. And if I fail to rejoice together with my brothers and sisters in Christ, then I'm necessarily going to be missing out on the value that salvation has for us in the present. But today, like this tie, Peter then moves into the past, talks about the future, he talks about the present, and now he's going to talk about the past and why your salvation has value based on something that happened in the past. See, salvation, our salvation, God's Intervention in the life of men has always been valuable because people have always been willing to sacrifice for it. We read beginning in in verse 10 these words, As to this salvation, this thing that I've been talking about for the last several verses, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Let's pray together and then we'll, we'll talk about this passage. Father, we thank You for today. Thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the truth that is in it. God, open our ears, open our minds, our understanding that we may see Your Word and be different. And then we ask that You'd change our wills for Your glory. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. It's always been worth sacrificing for. Our salvation is valuable to us today because people have always been willing to sacrifice for it. He said the prophets, and and first of all, just a note on prophets. Uh, The Jews, they called the Hebrew Bible our Old Testament. It was broken up into three parts. The Torah, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And then a section called the prophets, which included a lot of what we call the history. Judges, 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings. Those were included in the prophets. So all those people in those sections of the Bible, the, the Jews, the Old Testament books, would call them prophets, including people like Samuel and David. And of course, we know that, that Moses was talked about as a prophet. So when he, when he says the prophets, he's not just talking about people like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Hosea. And Jonah, though he includes those, he's talking about a whole lot of other people as well. The prophets searched diligently. They were willing to sacrifice. That word search diligently refers to exerting effort to find out. And whenever we exert effort, that takes sacrifice. I mean, it's easy, and what we we tend to do is we want to stay and rest. Remember, we diligently look for something, that means we have to get up off our duff and actually do it. We have to begin. Sometimes beginning is really the hardest part. And so God 
called people in the past. And they searched diligently trying to figure out this amazing truth that they didn't see very well. But it wasn't just their effort that that made it a sacrifice. He says in regard to this grace, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but, but you, but us. It was a sacrifice because this effort, this exerting effort, this diligent searching wasn't for themselves. I mean, I'm willing to go through a lot if, if it benefits me. I'm willing to get out with the hoe and mess with the garden and spend the time and pull the weeds because that benefits me. I get to eat fresh vegetables. But they were doing that for somebody else. It benefited us. And that's sacrifice. If I'm going to do what I'm going to do for somebody else and I don't get the benefit out of that, all the efforts, all their desire to figure out what was going on, God says, it's not for you, it's for someone else. And that that begins to shed light. If you want to turn back to to Isaiah chapter 6, it sheds some light on on what God was saying to him after he saw the vision. Beginning in verse 8, he said, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Who will proclaim this message that that I want to proclaim? And Isaiah said, Oh, here am I. Send me. He's excited. He's ready to go. And then God tells him what his ministry is going to be like. Anybody ever excited about doing something for God? And then God says, here's what your ministry is going to be like. He said, go and tell this people, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render their hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and return and be healed. Who's going to go? I'll go. Okay, it's going to be a miserable failure. No one is going to listen. Well, there were there were a few. We know that, that Hezekiah heeded some words of Isaiah. But in the grand scheme of things, nobody listened. Nobody paid attention. And yet, he was faithful to write down the visions the visions that nobody paid attention to. It was not a bestseller in his day. And he was promised it wasn't going to be. You're going to write a book that no one's going to read in your day. And yet he was faithful. Because the time would come when, when people would see the beauty and the wonder and the truths that were in it, as we read in Isaiah 53 a little while ago. And it was revealed to them, Peter says, that they were not serving themselves, they were serving us. And Peter says that that others, people he's writing to, did listen, did benefit. This message was spoken to his readers and to us. Someone proclaimed the truth to you. Someone carried on. Someone was willing to sacrifice and speak to you truth at some point in time in your life. 
Someone was faithful. Someone was sacrificed to carry on that message. Because the gospel and its message is always other-focused. The gospel and its message is always necessarily other-focused. It's part of who God's character is. That's why He's Trinity. It's not just this lone, self-absorbed deity. He's Father, He's Son, He's Holy Spirit. There's a relationship. And that relationship in some mystery extends itself to His creation. The gospel is always other-focused. And then so we should step back and go, is my life characterized by focus on me or focus on others? And if we take nothing else away from this this morning, we need to ask ourselves that question, where am I focused? Is my life wrapped up in me and my desires and my wishes or, or do I have an other focus? If someone told me your life is not going to be about you, it's going to be about someone else, would I go, oh, bummer. Or would I still, like Isaiah, say, here am I, send me. Because after he heard that message that no one's going to listen, he still went. He still spoke. He still wrote. That's true throughout the Old Testament. Turn back just a couple of pages past James to Hebrews chapter 11. The writer of Hebrews says the same thing. He says, beginning in verse 13, all these, he's been talking about mainly Abraham and some folks before him, all these died in faith without receiving the promises. But having seen them, looked ahead, and having confessed they were strangers and exiles on earth, part of Peter's theme as well. They welcomed them from a distance. And then he lists several more people and, and several more acts of faith. And then over in verse 39, we read these words. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us. Wait, let me read that. Let me read that again. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us. Does someone have a different... That doesn't seem right. The end of that sentence. Does someone have a different version? That sa- Shouldn't that say them? God had, God had provided something better for them? And isn't, isn't He talking about they live by faith, they got to go to heaven later? Isn't that what that's about? See, all of your versions say the same thing. All these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us, for you and me. And that doesn't seem fair. Because surely they got something out of it, right? I mean... Abraham traveled halfway across the known world. Didn't he get something out of that? Why did he do that? The writer of Hebrews would say he he did that. He followed God. He followed God's command. He obeyed for us. And what about Jacob in those 20 years out of the promised land and, and suffering under Laban? 
Is that for him? Did he, did he do that for him? And, and God would say, no, he did. You know, he did that for you. What about Joseph? Imprisonment and false accusation and being betrayed by his own brothers. For us. And Moses being willing to sacrifice and leave the wonder and glory of the palace to put up with a bunch of knuckleheads for years and years and years. And all of Mount Sinai, what did that point toward? Something for you and I. And Joshua, who could have just retired in a, a nice place like Caleb and given a nice hillside, a nice view over the lush, fertile valley, sacrificed and took over the role of Moses and led the people, again, a bunch of knuckleheads for years and years and years. Why? So that a land would be established, so that a place for the Messiah, which would be for us. And, and Samuel, who obeyed and anointed Saul as king in that wrecked havoc, on the nation. Why did he do that? Why was he faithful? The writer of Hebrews would say that was for us. And David, who was patient, waited, and didn't want to upset the apple cart as Saul continued to be evil, even though he had already been anointed and had the right, didn't want to tear the nation apart because there were still factions that were loyal to Saul, and he waited. And he was patient and he desired a place for the people to worship. And God said no and he is willing to sacrifice his dreams and his desires. Why? Did he benefit from that? Did he see the promise that God made about his sons being faithful and one that would sit on the throne forever? Did any of them see that? And yet they were faithful and they obeyed. was that for? It was for you and I. People on this side of the cross. The whole story from beginning to end is about people sacrificing that we might know God better. That we might be able to enter into a relationship with Him. And all of those point to and culminate in the ultimate sacrifice, Jesus. Who the writer of Hebrews says, For the joy set before Him endured the cross. See, it's not just giving up what, what I'd like to have. Abraham didn't just give up, Well, I'd like to just stay here with my family in, in Mesopotamia. I only want to go halfway across the world. It's obeying for somebody later that I don't know. It's giving of my time and my energy and my efforts and my way of life even for somebody else. Here, God, it's yours. And that's difficult. I mean, even simple things like this tie, if you said, I really want that, I really wouldn't want to give it to you. But people give up a whole lot more. And we, and we think about Christ who is again the culmination of all those because see all of those people had feet of clay. 
Abraham, Jacob, liars. David, an adulterer, a murderer. Moses, anger, pride. None of those folks who sacrificed for you, who carried on the message for you, none of those folks were perfect. But we come to Jesus, who didn't deserve the suffering that He got, didn't deserve to have to obey the Father, if you want to put it in those terms. And He didn't just obey for someone who was like Him, like Moses and David. They, they obeyed for someone who was like them, feet of clay. He was perfect. He was holy. He was righteous. He was God. As Paul wrote to Titus, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He sacrificed, He died, He suffered, as we read in Isaiah, for us, for our sins. Do you value your salvation? Yeah, it has value in the future. It has value in the present. But do you value your salvation for what's happened in the past, that you are simply a small dot in a long string of people who have sacrificed to make sure you've heard, to make sure you have an opportunity to know God? And ultimately it has value in not what what men did, but what God has done. And then Peter, at the very end, says something that I still don't understand. Things into which angels long to look. And I don't know if he's talking about the fact that angels don't sin, so therefore can't really experience grace in the same way we do. Or, Or if he's talking about that they're stooping down and and looking and observing and seeing how we respond. I, I don't know which one of those it is. It's just part of the mystery. But it's part of, of the wonder that even angels long to look into this thing that we get to experience. Whatever that means, it, it seems to add value to what we have. So what do we do? In the next verses we get next week, Peter is going to begin talking about some very specific things that we're supposed to do. He's going to start giving imperatives. Therefore, you need to... But this week, before we get there, we need to just think. Do I value my salvation enough that I'm willing to sacrifice for somebody else? Do I really... Well, maybe the better question, am I really a part of these people of faith? Am I a part of that? Because the people of faith, not perfectly, of course, other than Christ, have throughout history sacrificed for others that they did know and they didn't know. And so this week we need to ask ourselves that question, am I a part of that line of faith? Do I value my salvation enough that I'm willing to sacrifice for somebody else. He was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which have now been announced to you. And and whether it's future, present, or past, what undergirds all of that is the cross. As we read a couple of weeks ago, the That inheritance is through the death and resurrection of Christ. 
Our present rejoicing is based on what Jesus did on the cross. It's based on our faith, Peter says, in Jesus, which necessarily includes His death and resurrection. As we look back into the past, they were looking for what they were searching for was based on a foundation that God revealed to them about the sufferings of this Messiah. And I wonder what Isaiah thought as he penned that 53rd chapter. This doesn't make any sense. And we celebrate that today as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. See, in, in America, we, we celebrate lots of holidays and we celebrate people. We have things like President's Day and we have things like Valentine's Day where we celebrate the fat little angel with the bow and arrow. But see, we don't do that. We're not celebrating the prophets today. We're celebrating our Lord and Savior. We're celebrating what He did on the cross. We're also not celebrating our current trials, which Peter says we should rejoice in the midst of. We should rejoice in our salvation in the midst of those. We're not celebrating those. We're not even celebrating what will be necessarily. Even though we should, and Peter will say, we should long for what will be. That's not what we're celebrating this morning. We're celebrating the fact that Christ sacrificed for us. As a reminder to us, am I willing to be like Him through the power of His Spirit? And so would you take a moment where you are as we prepare to to celebrate, as we pass out the bread and the fruit of the vine, as we celebrate together, would you take a moment and, and celebrate and think about the value of your salvation? Let's pray together.